You're listening to the Wind Smart Podcast. Each podcast, we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to another Weed Smart Podcast. I can't believe it's March. We've got some interesting topics that we'll be covering today. We'll let you know what they are shortly. I'm also joined by my co-host, Peter Newman, as well. How are you, Pete? I'm well, Jess. And what about you? Have you been up to anything interesting lately? I have been. So I went to a comms conference last week, communications conference, so that'll help me get those messages out in a more efficient and proficient way, I suppose. That is a fast-changing world, isn't it, communications? And it's interesting seeing how fast uh, farmers and agronomists are picking up social media, especially Twitter. That's really been a massive hit with uh, the agros and the farmers. So it's interesting to see the change in how people are communicating and who knows what we'll be doing in a couple of years' time. Yeah, maybe podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully we're hitting the right mark with our podcast and and that will gain in popularity. It's meant to be quite a great medium for people. It seems to be with people's busy schedules, they can kind of pop on the podcast and, you know, be driving around and be listening to something informative at the same time. So, yes, hopefully we're we're not doing this for nothing, Pete. No, I think we're on the right track, Jess. There's a lot of farmers spending a lot of time behind the wheel of different things and hopefully the podcast is perfect for that environment. Yes, and what about you? You've been travelling a lot. What have you been up to? Yeah, it's been the update season, so I was in Victoria uh, last week at Bendigo and Rapanya updates and uh, managed to travel from Rapanya up to Minganyu the next day for an update on the other side of the country. So that was uh, that was really good and yeah, in Perth this week with more updates and things, so always good fun and good to catch up with lots of people. You could do a review on all the plane meals, I guess, as well, you know? Well, I get the gluten-free meal, being the celiac, and I pretty much get the same one every time. Oh, <laughs> you could so, do, yeah, uh, maybe you should hit up Twitter with a bit of a suggestion, Pete. More, yeah. More variety. Bit, bit of variety for the celiac, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we've got some interesting topics we're covering today with uh, our guests. So, the first person we're going to be having a chat with is Spray Applications Specialist from New Farm Australia, Bill Gordon, and he's obviously going to be talking about the importance of considering the implications of spray drift. And then later on, we're going to be hearing from New South Wales DPI agronomist Rowan Brill, and he's going to be chatting about picking the right seeds for uh, canola and the benefits of crop competition, all those sort of topics. And he's actually also going to be in our webinar for Weed Smart next Tuesday as well. So it'll be a good opportunity to get a bit of an insight into what he'll be talking about in that webinar. And if you have any questions, you'll be able to actually ask them next week in the webinar. So definitely encourage people to register for it. And speaking of seeds, Pete, I actually watched one of the Human Universe episodes, which is a Brian Cox documentary last night, and they were talking about the seed bowl in Svalbard, which is in the Arctic Circle. It's in Norway. Super interesting. I sort of knew about it before, but I was surprised at just how many seeds are there. Do you know how many seeds are in the seed bowl in Svalbard, Pete? Oh, I don't know, Jess. Well, a million? Is that a crazy guess? No, that's not a crazy guess. It's very close. 800,000 seeds are in the world at the moment. Yes. Of different cultivars. Yes, and it's a global project. So each country is invited to put their seed, their crop seeds into the vault. And even North Korea has their crop seeds. Whoa. 
yes. the secret of North Korea yes. sharing their seeds. They had a red box as well, which I thought was a little bit funny. Everyone else has sort of like black boxes or, you know, pretty standard <laughs> colours. The North Korean one was wooden and painted red, which... There you go. <laughs> Their own little mark. That's good. What about weeds? Have we got any weed seeds in there? Ari's got a nice collection of weed seeds. No, just the crop seeds. Ah. So I'm pretty sure. So they're just... It's actually just to protect the diversity of our crop seeds going into the future. And actually, some of the seeds are predicted to be viable after 20,000 years. Well, that's sort of that stuff where they found them with the pharaohs, isn't it? In the in the uh, pyramids of Egypt, they found some viable seeds, didn't they? So Yes. So, yes, yeah, super interesting. And the guy who actually started it, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was talking about how it's actually, while some people say it's a bit of a doomsday vault, he doesn't quite agree with that. He said that he finds it quite a positive collaboration. It's nice to see the global community contributing to this really important project. And it's also really interesting that the North Korean seeds are really quite close to the South Korean seeds. Obviously, with the library systems, countries that are close together are sort of placed together, but, you know, it's good to see at least some... Some collaboration. So, yeah, very interesting. If you want to know more about that, just Google Svalbard Global Seed Vault and you can find more about it. I think some new seeds have just been added in recent weeks, so you can find out more if you're interested in that. I found it quite interesting. Good luck uh, spelling Svalbard. Oh, it's S-V-A-L-B-A-R-D, Svalbard. Oh, that's easy. Okay. Yes, it sounds, it spells as it sounds. Righto. Yes. But first up, we are going to be chatting about spray drift with Bill Gordon. Pete, why is it so important to be really mindful of spray drift? Well, it's become a growing issue over the years, particularly a big issue in Australia at this time of year in summer, um, the east coast where there's cotton growing nearby where people are trying to spray summer weeds already in their in their summer fallows. So cotton being a very sensitive crop to the phenoxies, but it's become this big growing issue globally, particularly in the US where um, they now have stacked traits in soybeans which are not only Roundup Ready but also have a trait for dicamba tolerance as well. But not everybody's got the trait, so some people are spraying Roundup and dicamba and drifting it over a sensitive crop and that's caused massive issues in the US. Yes, even some murders I hear. Yeah, well, that you shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, I think there has. I think there's been murders over spray drift, so yeah, so it's a big issue. I think you laugh because it's just so surprising. It's not sort of, it's not it funny, is, it's, yeah. just, it's just shocking. But it is. Yes, yeah. we, we definitely want to ensure we never get to that kind of level of confrontation in Australia. So Bill Gordon has some great tips on spray drift and how to approach it. So let's take a listen to what he has to say. Today I'm chatting with New Farm Australia Spray Application Specialist, Bill Gordon. How are you, Bill? I'm great, thanks, Jessica. Now, we're going to be having a chat about spray drift. It's a really important issue. People always have lots of questions about it. But first of all, why is it so important to consider the implications of spray drift? I think it has such a big impact, not just on, say, a farm where it might cause some damage, but also in the environment surrounding those farms, be it native vegetation or riverine environments, but also the relationships between neighbours and within the community. So it's more than just is it causing damage to a crop, it's thinking a little bit wider about that as well. And I guess there's a logical follow-on from that. The more incidents we tend to have, the more 
pressure it places on the, the chemistries we currently have. And we can't really afford to lose any of the tools we have at the moment. So what approach should be taken to minimise spray drift? I guess from a, a spray operator's point of view, it's, it's thinking about those things you can control, but also the things you can't. So how you set up the machine and when you operate it are probably two key factors. The conditions when you're spraying is also really important. So selecting the coarsest nozzle that'll give you spray quality, you know, making sure the boom height's right, not having excessive speed and wind direction and wind speed. They're all really important, but other factors like the, the adjuvants you could add to the tank may increase or decrease the drift. And also the time of the day. We know that the risk of chemical moving large distances is much higher when people spray at night than it is during the day. There's a lot of nozzles available on the market, all different sizes. When it comes to spray drift, though, what should people be selecting? As I mentioned, the idea of using the coarsest nozzle you can, that'll still give you good control. So it's thinking about the product, and quite often the products that tend to show the most damage um, would be some of those fully translocated uh, herbicides like group eyes and glyphosate and when you're using those types of products you get a little bit more flexibility in pushing the droplet size bigger so you can move from a coarse to a larger droplet size or something like an extremely coarse spray quality and just by that shift in nozzle you can cut down that amount that can get into the air by another 80 percent so we find that that risk from nighttime spraying is really high and obviously there's inversion conditions people shouldn't be spraying. But if they change their nozzle setup and, and the use the right sort of adjuvant one that wouldn't increase drift, that airborne fraction could be cut by 90% just with that one change of practice alone. So the knowledge choice is really, really important, but also thinking about it in conjunction with the conditions at the time. There's always going to be times when you shouldn't spray, but when it starts getting a little bit marginal, it's better to be set up to minimise that risk as much as you can. Yes, definitely. And we sort of touched on some of the implications of spray drift. What about in irrigated areas? Is there more of an issue in those regions? I think there's a, a number of factors that probably play into that. I'm not aware of direct reasons why you know an irrigation area might be more susceptible other than to think about where they are and the crop itself. So quite often your irrigation areas are situated lower in the lower parts of the catchment where they can harvest water. So if you do get some airborne spray you know, under inversion conditions, it will naturally drain to those lower points. So location is a big part of it. Those areas are usually more susceptible. I guess maybe thinking about the crop itself, where you've got irrigated crops, quite often they'll be in a better condition. Maybe the cuticle's a bit more receptive to uptake a product that might move or drift onto them. There might be some other factors, but, you know, it's probably more about location than being surrounded by big or larger fallow areas and the condition of the crop itself. And we had an agronomist contact us, Barry Haskins, and he asked about 2,4-D. Is there any special considerations that need to be made around that chemical with spray drift? I think 2,4-D, like all of the other group I herbicides, they're not particularly selective. In other words, they will um, cause damage to a lot of broadleaf crops. Obviously, they're designed to kill weeds, but you know, a lot of crops like cotton or grapes you know, are particularly sensitive to, to 2,4-D at low rates. But, you know, they will be damaged by all the group buyers. So with those particular products, anyone using them, 
in areas surrounding those sensitive crops has to be really, really careful about how they set up. And so again, it's the setup of the sprayer when they spray. And if, if the wind's towards the crop, uh, that's probably just too dangerous. But also, you know, if they're in close proximity, that is. But spraying those products at night, particularly the later you go in the evening, the more likelihood it is that you'll leave some stuff in the air, some product. And at night, it just carries it so much further, particularly when you get into those inversion-type conditions, which can be hard to predict for most growers. So what sort of distances should people be considering as safe zones for spray drift? We do get a little bit of guidance from this from some labels, and in the future, the APVMA, Federal Agency that registers or approves the products for sale, they'll be putting things like no spray zones or downwind buffers on labels. They are on a couple of new products, but we're not there with all existing products yet, and that may still take a little more time. But in general terms, for daytime spraying where your air is mixing and moving, you can usually safely predict a, a safe downwind distance. So with wind speeds of around 15 kilometres an hour, and many of the group I products generally within three to 400 metres would have diluted sufficiently. But if you get outside of those daytime, daytime conditions where the air is not mixing, at night, I don't think you can predict a safe distance. Those uh, The products that get airborne at night can move tens of kilometres before they'll come down again. We're still waiting for some of those guidelines here in Australia. I know that movement, say, from a core spray quality to an extremely coarse spray quality in the US with some of their labels, they've actually brought that buffer down to 110 feet or about 30 to 40 metres. So it's the difference in changing your nozzle tie from a 300 metre buffer to about a 100 metre buffer, just, just through your nozzle choice by cutting down the risk. Yes, because in the US, as probably a lot of farmers and agros would be aware, there was actually a couple of murders over the use of, I think it was dicamba in crops. So is that where these tighter regulations are sort of coming about, do you think? I think the, the regulators have had plans to bring these changes into labels. Certainly the process has been going on for a number of years in Australia and America have been considering the same thing. I think that the situation over there with, I guess, spray drift and damage of sensitive crops you know, was, was pretty unique. They've got a couple of new over-the-top technology, in other words, crops with traits that make them tolerant to either dicamba or 2,4-D. And uh, one of the companies released soybeans with the dicamba resistant or tolerance trade in it before a product was registered for over-the-top application and so people went out and applied dicamba and it's probably different to what the product had intended in terms of droplet size and the volatility of the product itself. So it caused a lot of angst, there was a, a lot of potential for direct spray drift and potentially some volatility with the formulation they actually used because the type of dicamba intended for use on that crop had, had a lower uh, potential for, for lateralisation. So it was a really bad circumstance. A lot of people went out and applied products before they were legally allowed to. The, the damage was widespread across three states. So I'm hoping we don't ever see that sort of situation here. Yes, and I think by getting the message out about spray drift and using the correct label rates and using the product as it's intended is definitely a step in the right direction to ensure that that doesn't happen here. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to see that sort of thing happen in our, in our country. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time to have a chat. 
you know, Spreader is one of those things that you just got to be constantly aware as an applicator that this is a possibility and I need to take every step I can to minimise those chances to make sure I have the nozzles on hand, I, I look at the weather forecast, I know what to expect, more importantly that they, you know, they know when to stop. Definitely. All right, well, thank you so much, Bill. You're welcome. Really good to hear from Bill Gordon there. Very important points about spray drift. It's one of those things we really need to be mindful of, isn't it, Pete? It is. And what Bill doesn't know about spray drift isn't worth knowing, I think. But, yeah, he always talks about the basics. The basics are still the same. Uh, nothing much has changed, but it's just a matter of, of really getting the basics right and setting up a boom spray right. Because often the, the new expensive boom sprays don't necessarily come set up uh, right for a particular grower. So uh, they shouldn't really just take it out of the shed and go spraying. They really do need to listen to what Bill has to say and, and make sure their spray quality is right for the job they're doing. Definitely, and that will avoid any trouble with any neighbours. Let's hope so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, moving on to our other guest, Rowan Brill. He's from the New South Wales DPI. He's an agronomist there. And he's going to be actually be in our webinar with you, Pete, next Tuesday, talking about crop competition and, and seed trades. What insight do you have on this topic, Pete? Well, I actually spoke at Rapanya last week in Victoria, and Rowan spoke as well, so I've got a bit of a preview on what he's got to say, and he's got some good, simple stuff about particularly seed size of canola and about getting good seed quality, good seed size, therefore good establishment, therefore good early vigour, and just getting that good early crop competition. So we're obviously focused a bit on the weeds, but Rowan is focused on just general good crop agronomy, and he's got some really good messages, and that's simple stuff about getting your canola off to a good start. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. I'm chatting with New South Wales DPI agronomist Rowan Brill today about canola and what seeds to choose and he's actually going to be in our webinar next week on Tuesday talking more about this in detail but I've got him on the line now. How are you Rowan? Hey Jess, good thanks, good. Just been, yeah, on a few GLS updates around New South Wales and Victoria the last couple of weeks but back in Wagga now so yeah, going okay. Yes, it's been a busy time. I've been trying to track quite a few people down and everyone's been super busy but yeah understandable and some good things come out of those updates as well so I just firstly wanted to ask you what are some of the uh, factors of crop competition can you give us a bit of an insight what we see with canola it's really about that good establishment and then early vigour so getting the the even plant population and then getting those plants to grow as rapidly as possible and to cover the ground and smother the weeds as soon as possible so yeah so getting that establishment right seems to be the thing and and overall, as much as we might think our canola establishment's okay, we're probably seeing that even in our trials that we're probably only getting around an average of around that 50%. So there's still a lot of seeds that actually don't actually come to being established plants. So getting that right is pretty crucial. So one thing we've seen is that phosphorus with the seed, especially on sort of lighter textured soils, will drop establishment. We've seen phosphorus drop establishment by up to even 80% with on wide rows and so 20 kilos of phosphorus on very light soils but not such a great effect on some of the heavier soils and then obviously with narrow row space and lower rates of phosphorus doing less damage and we also see that we get much better establishment with larger canola seeds so actually making sure that we've got big seed with a lot of energy that will push up out of the ground if there's anything going against that actual larger seed which was a bit of a, an extra benefit we found that that larger seed also had more early vigour and in some cases that larger seed alone actually gave greater grain yield at the end by a couple hundred kilos as well so there was 
there's benefits from getting large seed in terms of actually improving establishment, but then also actually improving early vigour as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And growers at the moment would be choosing their seeds that they're going to plant. How do you go about getting the right seed and picking the right seed for you? So they've probably got the choice now. Most growers would either be purchasing hybrid seed or be retaining open pollinated seed from year to year. So with hybrid you can sort of question what the seed size is and, and be able to purchase seed that's actually bigger and, and more vigorous. Which means often though too that the bigger the seed, the less seeds you plant. So that actually has to be taken into consideration as well. But usually the bigger seed, the greater proportion actually established. For growers retaining open pollinated canola seed, if one of the standard things is to keep that seed from year to year and grade the seed and treat the seed with whatever is needed in terms of fungicides or insecticides. And we, we've certainly seen that if, if you grade that seed to it, ideally to a screen size of two millimetres to get a seed that's two millimetres diameter, that we get really good benefits in terms of its early vigour and its establishment by doing that. So even going from a, a 1.8 mil screen on a, on a seed cleaner to two mil seed doesn't seem like much. Only 0.2 of a mil diameter increase of seed is about a 35% increase in volume of that seed. So it is quite significant changing that that seed grading from from a 1.8 mil screen just up to a 2 mil screen. It might mean that that you've got to put, say, 30 tonne of canola through a grader to actually get that, but might only pull out one or two tonnes out of that, but the rest of the canola that's gone, that's fallen through the screen is still canola. That's below that 2 mils is still canola and still can be delivered as canola. Yeah, it's crazy how that two mil difference can make such a big difference. So there's also some new seed traits out there. Uh, what are they and what benefits do they have? Yeah, well, with that hybrid, we probably had more of an uptake of hybrid seed and, and they are generally bigger seeds as well. But then breaking that down into all the sort of herbicide groups we've got, we've started with the conventional herbicide types of canola that we that we sort of all grew 15, 20 years ago. And then we then obviously triazine tolerant canola came into it and helped with radish and, and ryegrass management. But then Clearfield came in as well, the Imi tolerant canola. And then obviously more recently, the Roundup tolerant, Roundup ready canola. And then again, more recently, the stacked Roundup and triazine tolerant canola. So that effectively they still, in terms of their physiology, still behave as a triazine tolerant canola. It just gives that ability to use triazine in the system as well as the Roundup. So instead of putting more pressure on Roundup in a Roundup ready type system and actually select for Roundup resistance, you still got that ability to use the residual of atrazine to actually take the pressure off the Roundup in that system as well. Yeah, right. And just yesterday, I actually saw some chat around planting times and it gets the debate going. People have quite uh, strong views on when to plant. What are some of the benefits of early planting, though? Oh, those, if, you can get in, if you can get a crop in early, especially sort of before those weeds really get established, we can, you can just get over the top of the weeds. But we've, we've certainly found that you can't just plant any variety early. So in our work in Southern New South Wales, we've seen that some of the faster varieties just develop and start flowering in June and just actually even in the absence of frost and disease actually get a lower grain yield but they also get exposed to frost and, and sclerotinia as they're flowering all through winter. So we found that there's certain varieties that are much better suited to planting earlier and they're usually varieties that, that might be rated say a 6 or a 7 in terms of their numbering system so varieties like Hyola 600 or Hyola 725. There's other varieties like Archer that we've seen that they really that can be sown early and they don't develop rapidly from early sowing but if you miss that early sowing window the, these varieties do speed 
speed up as they are sown later. So they offer a lot of flexibility in the sowing data. There's a lot of growers have to commit to their seed, even at the previous harvest, so they've got to make a decision on their seed then. So ideally you want something that's reasonably flexible across sowing dates to actually be able to capitalise on on when the rain does arrive. So that, that difference in their phenology is really important. And there's varieties that just, yeah, as I said, those varieties like diamond and stingray and that sort of thing that really develop rapidly from early sowing and they're not really suited to that early sowing situation. Yeah, for sure. So growers should really be quite careful in what they pick really because what might be good for your neighbour down the road might not be good for you depending on lots of factors whether it be yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's really some of those varieties that they've got a some, some of the faster varieties have got a more tighter selling window and they probably do do better from a later selling but to hit their optimum yield is probably in this area around Wagga is probably from a late April plant we've, we've seen that some of the varieties like the sort of GT50 and Hyla 600 and Archer have probably been fairly consistent across selling dates in the, in terms of their yield so that sort of gives a lot of flexibility definitely well thank you so much for giving us a bit of an insight we will have you on the webinar with peter newman next tuesday so if anyone has a burning question that has popped up listening to this podcast feel free to register for the webinar on our website and you'll be able to put your question to rowan thanks very much for your time today thanks yes no worries great hearing from rowan there and like i said before we started that chat it's a great opportunity to jump into the webinar on Tuesday because if you have any questions, you will be able to put them to Rowan in that webinar. So make sure you register on our website. We've got the link on our Weed Smart front page there in the sliders down the bottom. So click on that and you'll be able to register and you'll be set to go for Tuesday. Uh, so yeah, it's a really important thing too, seed, picking the right seed because you want to make sure that you are getting the most out of your crop. That's right, yeah. So Rowan's obviously covered a fair bit about uh, seed size and so on, but there's also some good information about hybrid vigour and really just getting that early crop competition is so important to uh, compete compete with these resistant weeds we're dealing with, Jess. Yes, we can't just rely on herbicide alone. We've got to use all the tools in the toolbox, don't we, Pete? That's right. That's what we always say. And uh, good crop competition is, is something that we can do over the whole farm. And so uh, it is a good tool. It's not something that just applies to small specific areas. It's something we can get right over a big scale. Definitely. All right. Well, that just about sums up the podcast, our first podcast for March. Thanks so much for joining me, Pete. Thank you, Jess. Great job. And we'll see you next time. No worries. Thanks. See you later, everyone.